Most people believe the Bible's an important book, but they ask, isn't it hard to understand? What does it mean, the stories, the prophecies, what is it all about? How is the average person to decipher it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And the answers to these questions and many more related ones are in our lesson today entitled, The Bible Didn't Say That, A Brief Introduction to Hermeneutics and Why It's Important. Lots of people read the Bible, or at least jump around and pull phrases out of it. But, is that how we're supposed to read it? How do we interpret the passages that don't seem to make sense, or that seem to contradict each other? And, what if I read a promise in the Bible, and God doesn't do what I think He said He should do? These are just a few of the questions people have when they read the Bible, and because of that, the entire field of biblical study called hermeneutics was developed. Other than a seminary class that sounds hard, what is biblical hermeneutics all about? Now, here is a definition of it by Bernard Ram, who, by the way, happened to be my seminary professor in hermeneutics, and this is what he says. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. It's a science because it's guided by rules within a system, and an art because the rules must be skillfully and prayerfully applied. It gets its name from Hermes, the Greek god who was the messenger of the gods and was also the god of eloquence, speech, writing, and art. Now, it is also, and this is my sort of definition or interpretation in practical words, it's also the path we take from reading to application with the Bible. Now, that path can be comfortably simple or it can be crazy complex. Many articles and books online, and certainly most Bible schools and seminary courses, quite honestly, go through the crazy complex route. And as I was preparing this lesson, I read all kinds of things, reviewed a lot of material, and I found that so many of them go into all this excruciating detail in-depth discussions of systems, details of word studies. Now, they can be fascinating. They can be all kinds of fun if you're sitting around in seminary or whatever. But here is what I found frustrating about them and why I'm going to be doing this little introduction very, very differently. Because The reason that I'm doing it very differently is because I felt that they can really distract and pull us away from the purpose of Scripture. And to me, we're reminded of the purpose of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says, All Scripture in the King James, I'm going to, by the way, read this to you in three different versions, and I'm doing this for a very specific reason that I'll talk about in a few minutes. But anyway, in the King James Version, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In the New International Version, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then, in the New Living, it says, 
all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The point of this verse is that if we don't get to the practical application of studying God's word in learning or action, then the word really has no meaning. It has no value to us. Hermeneutics must help us apply the word, or it's just a useless mental exercise. You could talk about how we got this word from this, and the etymology of this, and the development of that, and how this influenced that. But if the whole purpose of hermeneutics is to explain it in today's language to today's people so we can apply it and live a life that is pleasing to our Lord. So how does hermeneutics help us get to the right direction? It starts with we need to basically understand a passage. Now, If we don't, and I'll be explaining this more as I go along, if we don't just understand basically what the passage is all about, we can make all kinds of incorrect inferences that God will, for example, do all sorts of things that he never, in fact, promised to do. And then we'll get angry at God if he doesn't do them. A key, key example of this, and one that is often misunderstood, misquoted today in many instances, I see this actually used all the time, is Jeremiah 29, 11. And here's what the verse says. This is in the NIV. For I know, which is probably the most read version today, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, without a proper understanding of this passage, this is how people take it. They take it as an unconditional promise that God will, first of all, prosper you. And what most people take that to mean, just using the contemporary meaning of the word, is that God promises to prosper you, and most often prosper means to people money prosper, or in general, that God will give you whatever you want, preferably he's going to make you wealthy, he's going to take care of you financially, that that is what they claim in it. And the second thing, the not to harm you, that means God won't let anything bad happen to you. Now, people then compound these incorrect assumptions by saying something along the lines of, they make it an unconditional promise, and they'll say this, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But did God really say that? Did he really promise that he would prosper you financially and that nothing bad would happen to you? Well, if that isn't what the passage is about, what is it about? And how do we discover the true meaning of it? Well, here's, uh, for starters, what hermeneutics can show us what the passage is really about. Now, just I'm going to take a sort of very basic, basic word study of just two phrases in it. There's so much more that can be broken down in the verse and the passage, but we're just going to take two areas. Number one, the word prosper. When you look at the Hebrew word itself, it's not about prospering economically, no matter what. It's the Hebrew word shalom. 
that God will, he's saying, God says, I know the thoughts I have for you to shalom you. In other words, and this is so much neater than just money, you know, giving you money or whatever. Literally, God will pour out his all-encompassing peace over you. And then the second term that not to harm you, it means bad or evil. And it doesn't mean that difficult things won't happen. When you look at the context, which we will in a minute, it's a lot more complex and you really need to understand the historical setting for that particular phrase to make sense. This was part of a letter. This verse is part of a letter to the Babylonian exiles. And I'm going to read you the entire passage in just a minute. And it promises them that they would return to Israel. Now, the time between being in exile and the return was not going to be easy. But what he's saying in this verse is that God shalom would be with them through it all. Now let's look at the, let's just go ahead and read the passage. Just listen to it. This isn't even the whole chapter that I'm reading you. It's the start and it'll go, you know, probably three quarters of the way through. But in our Bibles, it starts out with a heading that is actually really correct. Now this isn't part of Holy Scripture, but it says right up at the top, a letter to the exiles. So right away, we know that this isn't necessarily just some sort of general letter to Christians everywhere, whatever. It's specifically to a group of exiles. And here's how the chapter starts. It says very clearly, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, excuse me, and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. By the way, the prophet um, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of that early um, early exile group. He entrusted the letter to um, various people. I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names. And here's what the letter said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams to the dreams they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. He's talking about Jerusalem. And then here's our verse. Keep in mind all that went before it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, 
plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, Daniel and his three friends, as I said, were some of the people this letter was addressed to. They were among the first taken to Babylon. They followed the advice of the letter in working for the welfare of Babylon. Actually, all four became respected government officials. Now, it wasn't without challenges. Three of them, if you know your Bible stories, were thrown into a fiery furnace for not worshiping the pagan king. But God delivered them out of it. And Daniel, when he was a very old man, we don't realize sometimes just, you know, hearing Bible stories, that when he was thrown into the lion's den, he was an old, old man. And they did that because he was praying to God. But again, God delivered him. Ezekiel was also, a little bit later, a captive in Babylon, and he would have also been a recipient of this letter. And we know his prophecy is filled with hope, one of the most memorable stories in it being where a valley filled with dry bones comes to life again. So these are some of the people that heard that promise, that God would shalom them, that he would pour out his peace over them no matter what trials they were going through. And ultimately, God brought the exiles from Babylon safely home back to Israel. Now, what practical, hermeneutical, or proper interpretation lessons can we learn from this brief example? Number one, and the most important, important, important thing, the importance of context. You don't need extra uh, materials. I'm going to tell you about some, and they're useful, and you can go into no more depth, but if you just read the context, that is so important. At a minimum, the surrounding verses, the chapter, better yet, read the entire book, and best of all, where does it fit in the entire Bible? Where does it fit into the historical context? What is the context of history? What's going on at that time? And where does the history surrounding the passage fit into the overall history of the Bible? It's so important to know that the people were in Babylon because they had sinned and sinned and sinned against God again and again and again. And God said, you know, if you keep doing this, you will be taken from your land. You will go into exile. And that's why they were there. But God also promised that he would bring them safely home again which he did. So understanding the passage in its historical context is very important. And then also the context of the authorship. Who wrote the passage? In the, in the entire passage too, we see that there were false prophets that were giving people false hope. And Jeremiah says, don't believe them. You know, they were saying that, oh, they would get to go back much sooner and the Jerusalem wouldn't really fall, but it did. The exile did last 70 years. And so 
it's important to know who is the actual author. Remember, the Bible quotes and tells the stories and does quote many people who are evil and wrong. And if you don't have the entire context of the passage and your history correct, you might not recognize the source of an unreliable quote. Now the second lesson, the importance of the words themselves. We can't assume that words mean the same to us that they meant to the biblical writers. Now we don't need to obsess about this and don't feel like you have to learn Greek and Hebrew and all this kind of stuff, but it can sometimes be rather helpful. That is one reason why reading different translations helps. You can see how different translators translate a verse and the word keyword here is of course prosper. As we saw today, as we, excuse me, as we saw today, that word means many things to many people regarding financial prosperity, financial prospering. But when we look at the Hebrew word itself, it's the word shalom which means peace. What should we do then to not make mistakes in understanding the words of a passage? Now, one thing that is really, really helpful is read the passage in a variety of translations. Again, just doing that, you will see the nuances of a word or if it means different things. I read you when we first started out Second Timothy, um, where it talked about how the Word of God is, you know, all scriptures inspired by God, all of it is God-breathed. You could see how different translators translated it, and you had a much fuller sense of the meaning of the words. In um, Jeremiah 29, 11, it's not always translated prosper. It's In some translations, it's God will give you peace, and it, you know, it actually is a better translation. So read the different translations. Well, how do you get the different translations? There are two resources that I really like. Um, one is the YouVersion Bible app. If you don't have that, I highly, highly recommend it. It's You can access it through www.bible.com. It's very easy. And then what when I'm on my desktop computer, I absolutely love using the Bible Gateway, www.biblegateway.com. And I'm hoping to do some online demonstrations of these. I'll have the videos on the YouTube channel and the links on the Bible 805 channel. I wanted to have them done before this lesson, but I don't. But um, hopefully I'll, I'll have them done soon. But anyway, go to www.biblegateway.com. And what's great about that is you can pull up different translations side by side. And that is so helpful because you can actually see what the different translations, how they, you know, maybe put words different or whatever. And that will really help you. I, I love being able to do that. A tool like Strong's Concordance will, you can get it in print, you can get it online. I will again hope to do an online demonstration to show you how to do this. But with that, you can look up the word in Greek or Hebrew and the meaning of it. For more in-depth study, a tool that I use all the time, it's completely free, it's really helpful, is the blueletterbible.org, www.blueletterbible.org. You can look up a passage and not only can you click on a word and see the Greek or Hebrew, but they have many, many more things to help you understand it. And again, 
hopefully in the very near future, I will have some demonstrations for you on how to use these, and you can see really how helpful they are. One more hermeneutics tool is called principalizing that we're going to talk about today. And I think this will encourage you because this answers the rather discouraging thought that I can't trust any of the promises of God in the Bible. If I have to know all this background stuff first, if I have to know the history and I have to know this and I have to know that, how can I how can I trust anything in the Bible? Well, um, Henry A. Verkler, who has written an excellent book on hermeneutics, defines principalizing in this way. He says, it's an attempt to discover in a narrative the spiritual, moral, and or theological principles that have relevance for the contemporary believer. In other words, how do what we know about God and how he treats us from other passages in the Bible, and based on that, what can we apply from that to the current passage that we're studying. In other words, what's it mean to me? Well, let's look at this. Hermeneutics, more than anything else, if we do it properly, helps us see the overall grand story of the Bible. It helps us know our God better and walk more closely with Him. Let's go back then to Jeremiah 29.11 and remembering what we know about what we've studied briefly about hermeneutics, but mostly about this this um, idea of principalizing. How can this passage apply to us? When we come to a passage like Jeremiah 29, 11, or any other, the most important lesson we have in hermeneutics from how to properly interpret the Bible is to remember how God acted, acts in other situations throughout biblical history. Because God is consistent in his character, his expectations, his love, and his care for us. So when we read a verse and we want to know how and if we can apply it to our current situation, we look back at what we know about God and his actions in previous situations. With that in mind, Jeremiah 29.11 becomes a passage that assures us that God is with us no matter how horrible our situation, even if we got ourselves into it. He wants us to make the best of it, to trust Him in it, and to know that He will shalom us by pouring out His peace and wholeness and love no matter what circumstances we're in. And ultimately, He will bring us safely. That's all for now. Please check out the notes, the links, the many other resources that I have for you at www.bible805.com. If this teaching has been beneficial to you, please tell your friends about it. People can use it to teach, to share whatever is helpful to enable people to know God's Word better. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest. From loneliness to knowing you are love. From turmoil to peace. From wherever you are on your spiritual journey. To a growing knowledge of God's word. And in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.